Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Fabula Pictures' Nicola De Angelis on why Italian drama hasn't yet reached its potential and the coming TV industry tsunami he sees. Skybound's Marge Dean on the rise of adult animation, Banerjee's Lucas Green on the UK return of Big Brother and PBS Kids' Sarah DeWitt on reaching young audiences via YouTube and gaming. Rome-based Fabula Pictures was established ten years ago by brothers Nicola and Marco De Angelis and five years later France's Federation Studios acquired a majority stake in the business which is behind series including Baby and Briganti for Netflix, Time After Time for Sky Italia and We Are Legend for Ryan Amazon. Nicola was among those attending the MIA International Audiovisual Market last month where he was pitching new action drama two hours from now and he spoke there with Michael Picard about Fabula's latest shows, the appeal of these projects, why Italian drama hasn't yet reached its export potential and why he believes an industry-wide easing in production is only the calm before the storm. So 10 years ago we... We started the company uh, with, uh, with some local stuff and uh, a couple of movies. Mm-hmm. And then we had the chance to talk to Pascal Breton at Federation. We started a partnership together. And all of a sudden, uh, happened everything together, like um, first, first, shows, uh, first show on Netflix, mm-hmm. second show on Netflix, talking about Baby and Zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, started to do some a couple of movies and rye, rye stuff and now we are moving towards a different stratosphere of, uh, of projects, more international, more global, more action-packed and so this is probably the new generation of projects for Fabula. So 10 years from now, back in time, uh, we did a lot. Yeah, I mean what would you describe I guess your approach to storytelling, what kind of stories do you want to tell at Fabula? Uh, it would be not ex- Extremely professional, my perspective to say uh, we are the ones uh, uh, specifically doing this or mm-hmm. that. Yeah. We do we do what our DNA is calling. Our DNA is pretty much rock and roll. <laughs> we do love uh, crazy stuff. Yeah. We do love elevated pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, we might be probably considered here in Italy, especially someone probably the production company who likes elevated stuff, elevated pitch. We love we love stories with a clear and understandable essence mm-hmm. that might be brought on a different level, like superheroes, uh, light sci-fi, time traveling, or like the one we are now airing on Sky. So it's a it's a simple crime time after time I'm talking this show about. Yeah. Uh, it's a simple crime, but it's time traveling crime. So we like we like to evolve the storytelling and and audiences are really much appreciating that. Yeah, yeah. So this is the kind of show we're looking for. True story, true elements, true characters, complex characters, accidental heroes in exceptional situation mm-hmm. that might be probably telling you that people want to see special stories um, like in a mirror uh, set and uh, tailor-made on common people. Yeah, fantastic. And, and where are you getting your stories And if we said something like Baby or, or Zero, where are you developing in-house or are, these, are you taking pitches from writers and working with different talent? How does that Most work? Most of the times we do and scout new talents. Okay. We love to scout new talents. For example, Baby has been um, an idea brought by 25 years old uh, group of writers. Mm-hmm. And we love to work and grow together with uh, with new talents in the in the, in the arena. Yeah. Uh, some other times we develop in house some other stories we we find uh, we, we scout in the market. If I need to admit, uh, vice versa of the common uh, uh, common trend mm-hmm. of getting IPs, we don't like so much okay. adapting IPs. Okay. I think it's uh, we have. Uh, Dozens and dozens of uh, fantastic shows mm-hmm. taken from very bad books or novels. Vice versa, this trend will allow us to do the same with uh, very bad shows mm-hmm. coming from very bad books. Mm-hmm. So it's very thin the line where you can find a fantastic IP and change it into a good show. Yeah. So we prefer to invest a lot of new talents original ideas that might become probably franchise mm-hmm. 
There's also a branch of our company investing a lot on comic books, okay. uh, graphic novels, video games, and so we are adapting a little bit more this kind of stuff instead of the classic novels out of the bookstore. Yeah, I mean, what's that like for you pitching to commissioners then? Because we've, we're at MIA, when we're speaking at MIA, and uh, a, lot, a lot of this week we've heard about the importance of IP and, and how maybe the, the industry is having a tough time and, and commissioners are wanting to take less risks perhaps so they want IP that they can promote and have a clear message about what the story is so when you go into an office with a brand new crazy idea I mean are you you know are the doors open to you with those proposals I need to follow my gut <laughs> uh, otherwise I'm gonna be one of the 1,000 producers doing the same kind of approach yeah. so but also if you Buy a, if you buy a novel, if you buy an IP, you need to ask the writer for a take, then you need to adapt your pitching to that take, and then you need to go to the broadcaster. Sometimes it might be just a very quick uh, process. Yeah. Some other times it takes longer than creating a brand new idea. Yeah. So the broadcaster or the platforms especially, they know we are generally pitching uh, new ideas or original ideas or true stories adapted on original ideas mm -hmm. and that's probably the strength of Fabula and probably that's the distinctive tract of Fabula yeah. so the, the way that the commissioner see us is okay this time we're gonna listen to brand new ideas and mm -hmm. pretty much the same what we did uh, here at Mia pitching uh, pitching this um, this uh, this new show called uh, Two Hours From Now which is a tells the story of a running train with a bomb on it. Uh, sort of a hijack meets speed, okay. meets uh, a cop show. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the way we pitch it has been slightly different than, uh, than the rest of the pitch because okay. we, we wanted to introduce uh, an immersive uh, way to, to understand the story and for, for all the audiences. So we did a different kind of a show. Yeah, So and, and the shows you're talking about, they blend a lot of different genres, do they? like? You yeah. know, bomb yeah. on a train is a thriller, but it's I imagine there's emotion thriller, at heart. Emotional, and, so yeah. there's a love story. Yeah. I love also to select stories where you have one genre contained in another, contained in another. So we love to have a, we love we love to have a lot of concerning the uh, um, mixing mixing stuff, mixing genres because yeah. we really need this makes us give us the possibility to elevate to the, anything we do yeah. and also mixing with music we do a lot of our research within music okay. we do we spend a lot of money in uh, making making compelling choices and uh, compelling uh, deals with um, with the publishers we love it yeah we love it and then on baby has been that on the time after time we did the same on the weird legend the next uh, Rice show we are we are about to broadcast on early November. Yeah. Um, we, we researching on music gave us the opportunity to be current as much as we can. Yeah. And you mentioned you've got a Rice show. You've worked with Netflix. How do you select maybe your partners for each project and, and working between broadcast traditional broadcasters and streaming platforms? Do you? find any difference perhaps uh, it, there were there, there were a lot of differences mm -hmm. so in a, in, in a very initial year of platforms we've been so much uh, interacting with with the two entities like leader classic broadcaster we were pitching a certain type of shows on uh, platforms we were having a total freedom yeah. uh, after seven years of platforms more or less yeah. I can tell you that probably this is this the mainstream and audience uh, main, mainstream audiences uh, now are broader so you need not to have those distinctives uh, pitches or or type of stories yeah. you probably need to go more um, more at the same with all broadcasters and platforms at, the, at once I would say probably we're losing something in terms of um, innovation yeah but it's a cycle. I think probably not today the cycle tells you need to be calm and broader. There would be probably in, two, in one year's time the, the general need to get uh, edgier or different mm -hmm. and then 
I, I, I see it as a cycle. It's a cycle. Yeah, yeah. And how are things um, in Italy at the moment? Uh, you know, lots of industry talk about it being a tough time. How, how are you finding things here at the moment? It's not only in Italy. It's yeah. a tough time now, almost everywhere. Yeah. I use the metaphor of um, the tragic events in 2004 in um, Sumatra. So we are now at last spring, we had the earthquake um, deep in the ocean. So the water gets out of the beach and then it gets away from the heart. And then we have the big tsunami wave. I think we're, not, we're still not facing tsunami wave. So we're still in a, in a moment where the big, uh, the big drama <laughs> behind the crisis yeah. hasn't hasn't come yet. Okay. Uh, Italy is a tough time because we have a lack of uh, exportable shows mm -hmm. and lack of uh, exportable matters that would be credible outside of Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is creating an uh, um, um, oversized domestic uh, market okay. that probably will implode somewhere too many shows, too many same shows, too much of a um, domestic demand that could crack us uh, down. Um, probably this is different from other countries, like they have different genres, like, like France, they have action, they have uh, a little of a thriller. We have a lot of uh, crime, a lot of light crime, a lot of family dramas, so it will implode. Yeah. in a way or another has to implode to make it better yeah and so how are you kind of going to navigate through the next you know 12 18 months still being yourself yeah you need to keep being yourself um means you need to believe in elevated pitch mm -hmm. you need to believe in elevated dramas you need to believe in elevated ideas and you can bring those ideas to become the next generation of project that nobody uh, will expect from you i trust YA dramas, mm -hmm. I've always been trusting YA dramas, so the one on Rye, We Are Legend, is a YA, uh, but uh, time after time on Sky, at the end of the day, is a YA drama, mm -hmm. YA, um, um, Baby was a YA, um, Briganti, the next, our next uh, uh, show on Netflix, uh, is not YA, but it's for younger audiences at all, and I trust Nobody wants them, but we might, it's a it's a huge mistake to forget about younger audiences. Even if they're broken, they have no money, they don't pay for bills. They are the most important way to uh, navigate and let them grow with you. So they will be 30-something with your shows in their minds, printed in their brains. So we, we need to keep doing stuff for them and probably this is the recipe to get out of the mud. Yeah, and, and we saw you earlier in the week talking on a diversity panel, talking about inclusion and representation. How are you and Fabula kind of working to improve you know, diversity on the shows that you make? We did a show some time ago, the very first black show in Italy, and we faced the problem. I mean, there's a, there's a huge lack of um, uh, education within... Uh, um, within audiences. Audiences must, must be educated in accepting, in, being, in, in normalizing anything around those matters. Mm -hmm. The more we point, underline, and we focus, we stay focused on making the difference evident, the more we make them in a ghetto. Mm -hmm. I think we need to normalize it. So I think any kind of characters is has an interesting story to tell. Aside of uh, his gender, his uh, religion orientation, uh, or color of the skin. So we need to focus on characters. If you focus on characters, any other stuff will be normal, then acceptable. Yeah, yeah. And, and you talk then about uh, also Italian shows maybe not breaking through onto the international market. So are you working internationally and, and what do you think is needed to get more Italian exposure on, you know, on, on to, to international viewers? Okay, I, I, I'm not exactly the, um, the most polite person you might ask that <laughs> because I think we've been overselling 
uh, iconic stuff out of our country, so we probably need to stop a little bit to think about that we need to export pizza, we need to export art, we need to export anything, or mafias. There are many other things we can export, many other things uh, outside of the period uh, airspace, probably more contemporary stuff. We should explore um, action more and more. That's why Fabula is, um, is uh, launching very much the creation of uh, dramas and also movies. We are getting back into movies a lot. Action movies, action-packed, but action contain action dramas or movies. Anything around a specific genre that, or a specific type of shows, or a specific type of um, taste from the audience uh, that might, might allow us to be universal more than ever. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so, looking ahead the next year or so, I mean, what are your priorities? What are your new shows that you're can sort of tell us about? What where where is Fabula going to be over the next six, twelve months? Uh -huh. I don't know. So, now there will be a lot to announce. We are absolutely working jointly with um, uh, both with Sky Mediaset and, and Rai, both but Sky Mediaset and Rai for new shows and new stuff. Um, we are now um, we are now harvesting a lot of our good results and a lot of our good um, feelings yeah. in order to launch new stuff. I, what I can tell you that probably we will get, we will go on unexpected um, uh, broadcaster. They've always been chasing for classic, um, classic shows, more on uh, contemporary, um, uh, contemporary episodic procedurals. Mm -hmm. So we're getting into the procedurals war, and very, very soon, probably uh, around C21 uh, happening in London, we'll be able to announce jointly with this uh, big um, broadcaster okay. something interesting. So I mean, procedurals are maybe something that have been out of fashion for a little while. You know, people haven't been making them. Why do you think you know now is the time for you to go into that? episodic kind of structure for a it, drama. It's, it's even more exciting because if you do elevated stuff into the procedural episodic stuff, mm -hmm. the episodic way to do it uh, can give you a lot of uh, good opportunities to explore characters. We are working jointly with uh, actors and um, and showrunners to make a sort of a tailor-made building of characters that may be, may be also so much sellable, yeah. ready-made, but also so much remakeable. Because once you create the perfect shape of the around characters, you probably can find good stuff. Same same for the more global shows we're working on. We're working on um, on many spy shows. Okay. Uh, many two spy shows. <laughs> One is uh, one specifically, and I can tell you this. It's about uh, um, gas energy. Mm -hmm. It's a spy story between Ukraine, Russia, set between Italy, UK, France, and the war in Ukraine, Russia, and it's about a sort of a um, fixer in in, a, in companies working on gas and oil, a sort of a Ray Donovan in, um, in, uh, in, the, in the world of uh, gas and oil, um, with a spy vein uh, through the story that will give us uh, a little of American meets uh, Odirk meets anything spy, like the, like the Bureau or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So this is the new generation project, this, this project is called Prometheus, okay. and we will go for mar in, in markets very soon. The show we, we've been pitching here, uh, we, we got a lot of um, interest between Italy and France or Italy and Germany, so pitching here at okay. MIA has been so overwhelming because we didn't know that was so hard to prep a certain level of pitch so this this show called uh, Two Hours From Now, the one on the train I was pitching you, um, it now has a lot of interest uh, between border um, um, border countries because it's a border show. So Italy, France, we already have been taken out, um, and also we're working with um, the Croatian uh, production uh, on uh, on a show uh, set between Italy and Croatia. Mm -hmm. We already have a German pre-sale um, and um, and a Croatian uh, uh, an HRT Croatian TV aboard. 
this show is called Greater Adria. Greater Adria is about uh, chasing energy in, under the sea, mm -hmm. and it's a thriller, eco thriller. And we will be working with those uh, two fantastic companies, uh, and it's going to be great. Uh, Briganti, I told you so about that. So Briganti is going to be uh, not yet announced the release date okay. uh, from Netflix. So it's our next big uh, Netflix uh, show. Okay. It's a show about a set in the south of Italy. It's a sort of a western in the south of Italy. After the unification of the uh, of Italy, okay. we had those uh, gangs in the forest. As we're trying to be the anarchist of the time. Mm -hmm. It's an action-packed, but also period drama at the same time. Uh, always about the box containing another box. <laughs> um, and then on February, we, we will release on Amazon a movie, um, an, an original movie called uh, Still Fabulous for the International Market. Yeah. Uh, it's about body positivity, <laughs> so very clever way to depict a, a romantic comedy into a, a bigger and wider thematic like body positivity. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, it sounds like you're busy. <laughs> yeah. well, otherwise I wouldn't be playing golf, but right, uh, I'm too young yet. <laughs>I think in a lot of ways uh, you have to think about adult animation a little bit more like you do adult. I mean, it's not dissimilar to adult dramatic or comedic writing. Yeah. I mean, if you look at talking about comedy, like, you know, the most successful shows uh, in initially in adult was, you know, the primetime sitcoms. I mean, and they really did take a sitcom model. Most of the writers on, like, The Simpsons or Bob's Burgers or... Um, family Guy are, you know, people who came from sitcom, like live-action sitcom, and, um, and, and that's what made them funny. And, and similarly, like the writers that we look for on Invincible are, um, you know, people who have at least had an experience. I mean, they may have animation experience, but really the experience we're looking for are people who have done hour-long dramas, you know, because uh, Invincible is an hour-long show. And um, that's a whole different like story structure, you know, that you have to understand how to handle. And um, animation folk writers don't normally understand that because they don't do that, yeah. you know. I mean, that's a bit of a game changer in animation, isn't it? An hour-long format. It's to yes, yeah, because I, I think that people and people said a lot of times, like, um, you know, when Robert presented. Uh, Amazon with Invincible and they wanted it, um, he always saw it as an hour long. And and everybody tried to convince him to make it a half hour because at that time in the world and in the history of animation, no one had ever successfully done an hour long animation, dramatic, you know, yeah. serious, 
like if you aren't going to stick songs in it, you know, have some musicals or, you know, comedy. Uh, no one believed that the audience would stick around for a, a serious dramatic story told in animation. And Robert proved them wrong, you know, and the, the success of the show is just like, it did change it. And then after that, now there are more and more hour-long dramatic shows in animation yeah, yeah. that are working well, you know, Vox Machina and, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so Invincible is coming back for season two. Is there something about that show you think that was did make it a success with fans or is there a secret to adult animation generally that you try and adhere to? I think the, the real secret is that balance between um, action and um, drama mm-hmm. and emotion, you know, and, and it's got to be real. I think initially people were thinking adult animation is like you put a lot of sexuality in it, a lot of violence and a lot of cursing, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it like it didn't make it any better. And I think the thing that Robert knew and, you know, what our team has put together is like there is good, solid emotional storytelling, like Invincible on the surface looks like this incredibly violent, you know, superhero story. But really what it is is a, uh, an incredibly emotional father-son you know, fighting over, you know, the son trying to realize himself and his, and realizing that his father is this awful, horrible being, you know, being or person, and, and he's like him, and am I going to turn into him? Like, that whole internal struggle for Mark is, it's, you know, profound, and it's, I don't know, it's like epic, you know? <laughs> and so it's like having those real sort of epic stories, um, all of that stuff, it's like those are the real you know, human issues yeah. that um, we address, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, animation, I guess there are no limits, which is um, a positive, but how do you keep the, a show like Invincible grounded, perhaps, or, or rooted in, in reality so it, is, it does have those universal touch points that viewers can relate to? Well, I think that's in the writing and it's in the comics. Yeah. 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 I mean, we are sticking very close to the comics. Okay. So, and also, Robert is the showrunner, mm-hmm. you know, so this is, he's like, he is controlling the show, so um, he makes sure of that, and I think that's his superpower as a writer and what he's... Uh, really shown over and over again if you read like all of the stuff that he's written um, he just has this way of making stuff grounded and real part of it he's a very grounded and real person himself yeah yeah and so talk us through maybe that you know the just the production process behind a, a show like Invincible you know we hear of um, I'm thinking of Fox and, and Krapopolis ordering three seasons before it's even aired and, and obviously they're taking a, a, a bet on it. How early do you have to get into production and, and selling these shows before obviously you can deliver them? It takes a little while. Yeah, yeah, it de- definitely does. Um, you know, for us, the I mean, just talking about the time and the amount of time that it takes, I mean, it, we started this show in 2021 in the fall of 2021 and you know we're now launching season two um, and then we will continue to work on season three uh, until next June you know so that will be almost three years to do 16 or 17 because we did the special too 17 episodes yeah yeah but yeah. I mean it's I guess is it a sign of confidence that they order you know broadcasters will commission you so far out because it takes the time obviously but then when they're ordering multiple seasons so early because they want it quite quickly they're obviously very confident in the in the proposition it also i mean i'm sure it's that i mean they wouldn't do it if they weren't confident but i think the other thing is you save a tremendous amount of money of course if you do it if you, (laughs) you know because especially in animation because it's all um you know, it cascades, the schedule cascades down. So if you, the more, it's like the first episode you do is the most expensive. And as you start doing them, they get less expensive per episode, uh-huh. you know, because you have overlapping costs and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, it's always smarter to order more than less if you have confidence. Yeah. I mean, uh, Invincible, they only ordered one season, well, season one. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, once it performed the way that it performed, they, they had no doubt that they needed to, you know, keep going. And they want to have, a, you know, regular rollout. Like, they, we're always reassuring fans that it's not going to be another two years before we have another season. That's sort of why I think we already are talking about that there is a season three in the mix so yeah. that people will know 
like they're not going to have to wait two years for season three. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess particularly on the scripted side, we're hearing about lots of pressures at the moment. You know, financial pressures and, and a commissioning slowdown. I mean, how would you just say animation is at the moment, and where are those opportunities or, or kind of in, you know industry challenges that the the community is facing at the moment? I'll be really honest. Like I'm a little confused right now <laughs> because it seems like it. Uh, it seems like more and more animation is definitely adult animation yeah. is exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, kids animation they seem to be cutting back on, which personally I think is a mistake mm-hmm. because they will always be children and they will always want to watch cartoons. But um, but but then there are companies like I just read this morning that um, Netflix is reorganizing their animation division and they will be layoffs mm-hmm. and they're looking to outside producers. So that I. I, what I'm confused about is I don't know that it means that there'll be less animation or if they'll just rethinking how they make it. And so, yeah. you know, perhaps it won't all get it made inside, in-house, in their studio and that they'll start working with studios like Skybound or Titmouse or, you know, international studios to actually make the content. So that's the part I'm not sure yet. It's like, I just know in L.A. there's a lot of people yeah. getting laid off and so... Animation community is a little bit in shock right now, mm-hmm. and um, but I don't know that that means there'll be less animation. Just I guess going inside Skybound and the way you work internally. I mean, um, we know a lot about the Wheel of Awesome. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what that means for you and and how you work within the company with your other partners to you know to do the 360 sort of experience that Skybound offers its projects. Right. Um, well, it works in a, several different ways. Um, you know, I mean, one obvious way is I'm producing the, you know, pretty much the main uh, IP that we're, that's driving the company now. But at first it was The Walking Dead, and there's still Walking Dead stuff happening, but Invincible is moving out to be the big, you know, so my first and core directive is to get that show out and, you know, and make sure it's good and, you know, because everybody else benefits from that. So that's sort of how I interface with them is I give them the meat that they can feast on. (laughs) And, um, and, but then I'm also, um, you know, like we have regular communication with each other and, uh, you know, we're very accessible to each other to be able to, you know, all the people who lead the other groups, um, to be able to share information and, and look for opportunities and, since we have we have a regular like weekly meeting where certain things will pop up and um, you know we would not never have made that connection unless except that we were in a meeting where somebody was talking about something they were doing and I go oh hey you know I got this thing over here does that could that relate or help or support what you're doing yeah. um, and then the other thing which I'm really excited about is you know we have a very strong gaming team and um, Patrick Gilmore is the head of production at the gaming side of the gaming group and he and I have been talking a lot about we're both like a little obsessed with trying to figure out how to parallel run our pipelines parallel you know if we could have an IP you know it's it's the um, holy grail you know of game and, and linear coming together and you have one IP that you're able to produce a game and produce a linear content like a TV show or a movie and benefit and do it really effectively or efficiently and cross over and you know share assets or you know share animators or something whatever you can figure out and that's what we're trying to figure out is how do we align our pipelines to really be mutually beneficial yeah i mean because of skybound's you know extensive collection of ip through the comics and the games is that would that be your first port of call for new projects or are you developing original ideas as animation that then would go out and be sort of engineered as comic books or games well you know you don't want to look look a gift horse in the mouth right (laughs) it's all there and it's amazing ip Mm -hmm. so we definitely start with our own ip Mm -hmm. you know and also we own it so it's a much better situation for us like we don't have to pay somebody else you know or share with somebody else and um but that being said, if, if original IP comes in and I'm excited about it or, you know, the, or my team is excited about it, uh, there is a whole process that we are doing now where we, we, we call it the Wheel of Awesome, uh, Wheel of Awesome pitch, where I'll call somebody from each of the other groups and we'll all meet with the creator for them to do the pitch for the whole group. And then afterwards we'll decide whether or not, you know, if, if the comics like it and or not and gaming likes it or not and can they do something with it and 
um, it's actually really fun because it's like every, if everybody likes it, then it's like we're all super excited about it and we get to really talk about the content. And so, so we do have a mechanism for that. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel animation has, a, in regards to its status in the industry, do you feel animation sort of a bit uh, underappreciated perhaps or underestimated? How do you feel and what perhaps is needed to, to take animation to the next level? Well, I do. You know, I feel like animation is the red-headed stepchild, you know, in the entertainment family, and, and we're always sort of a second thought. And I think part of that is that everyone has always, every, at least in the U.S., has assumed that it's for kids, you know, and so therefore it's, you know, there's not as much money spent on it and not as much money earned by it if you work in it. And, and so, um, you know, if you're serious about entertainment, you're going to go into live action feature films, you know, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think what needs to happen is, like, what is happening is, like, and I think Invincible really played a key role in, in, in shifting that a little bit. Um, because, you know, one of the stats that we were told from Amazon was that the show over-indexed in people who don't normally watch animation. So there were people who, you know, a large number of people who never watch animation, doesn't usually come across their radar, and somehow they heard about the show, you know, through word of mouth, or they saw it on, you know, on Amazon, um, and they checked it out and got hooked, and, and then loved the show, you know, and it's like they even... They don't even think about it as being animated. Yeah. And so I think more of that needs to happen. And and that's, I also feel like what I would love to see is to attract more people, you know, uh, from live action, because I think they have had the opportunity to really develop elevated skills in writing and directing that if applied to animation, it would be stunning and amazing. Yeah. So... Right, and, and just finally, what, what are your kind of priorities then going forward once Invincible is out in the world? What are you working on next and, and what are your plans of maybe for 2024? Well, there will, our future plans will always have Invincible in them. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have many years of working on Invincible. I mean, the, when I talked to Robert, when I first started it and I said, well, how many seasons do you think would tell the whole story? Because there is a fi it's a finite story. Yeah. You know, and he said, mm, I think about eight. So <laughs> that's our goal. I don't yeah. know, Amazon hasn't agreed to that yet, but that's our goal. Um, so I think we'll be doing that a lot. And then in addition, uh, we're, you know, we, we, they have been talking to us and we're sort of developing the spin-offs. I, I didn't mention that, but uh, Invincible is a universe. It's like, there's a story of Mark Grayson, but then there are at least four or five other stories that are all within the Invincible universe. And, and there are certain ones that Amazon is interested in, and so we could, you know, we could end up being making more series like that, you know. And um, and then I would love to, as I said before, I do want to figure out this thing with the gaming team and see if we can come up with. I, I'm really getting since I've been hanging out with them a lot. I'm getting a lot more interested in in interactive. So I would also love to figure out ways to either repurpose or create animation in an interactive style. It's not like necessarily gaming and you know, like I'd love to figure out how to use social media as a, as a platform to really, you know the figure, like I know how to do it, everybody there are people doing it, but it's like how do you do that and pay for the content that you're making you know what I mean? So um, anyway, those are some of the things I'd love to build a CG pipeline at at Skybound as well, so I'm hoping one of the spin-offs will be able to do in a, you know, with CG. Yeah, and I mean, just on, on, on CG and technology, I guess, AI is a big talking point. How are you seeing AI being used in animation and, and where might it lead, perhaps? Um, well, the first question, uh, how I see it being used now, uh, how people are using it, is, I mean, they're using it for a lot of admin processes, you know, like, um, I know a lot of people that use it, in fact, I'm right now trying to do, not me, myself, but I have somebody on my team uh, trying to do a script breakdown with, through AI, and, you know, there's a lot of people using it for that, you know, which I think is a great use for AIs, like, that's a really boring task, and, um, and so, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff, and, you know, we're trying to figure out if there's, it's, you know, a way of automating things that are tedious and uh, take up people's time. Um, I also know people are 
using it for like static design, like in doing development design, you know, um, it makes a lot of sense to me to for development because it's it's something where you can rapidly output different takes on things. So if you're like trying to figure out what a show is going to look like, rather than having artist after artist, you know, create it, you can use AI to experiment with different styles and, and get close to what it might look like, you know, in the show. So, um, you know, it definitely development is sort of like a throw the spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks. And so I think that's another use that it could have. And what was the second part? Of the Just question? where it might lead. What are we going to be seeing? Fully, anim- you know, fully animated AI series. I have, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even venture. I mean, because I, I, on one hand, I'm not a big, I'm not a like technical person yeah. in the sense that's not my training, but. Um, I also don't want to underestimate it. You know, I don't want to say, oh no. But I, I know right now what I'm told from uh, friends who've been working with it is it can't animate right now. Uh, it doesn't, you know, whatever, the way it works, you can't get it to do consecutive images. Um, I think you could get it to create individual images itself, but you can't you can't give it the, the direction of make this character walk across the frame, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, but we'll someone teach it or will it learn it or will somebody figure out how to program that probably people are trying so maybe somebody would be successful um i personally think i think the whole beauty of animation which is i'm also very much a like i love 2d animation uh, i prefer it like as a as a fan and as a viewer i prefer it and uh, and it's because I feel the human touch when I watch it. You know, I saw I saw this great comparison at one point of um, in a, a frame from Lion King that was hand drawn from the original animated movie, and then the live action version of it that they did, and the expression and the life that was in the hand drawing, totally missing from the live action image. And it was exactly the same frame. You know, and um, I thought that was really significant. And I think. I think people will see it. You know, it's just like, will they accept it at some point? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, I won't, but <laughs> other people may be fine with it, you know. Um, I think artists are, the, you know, the treasure of our society. It's like, we should be, you know, cher- cherishing them. You know, it's just like what they bring to our life. It's, it's to me, art is like, the, the best thing about being human and so anything that's going to hurt that or obliterate that is in my mind not great and we shouldn't you know but it's really up to us if we let it happen yeah. you know and that skybounds position is we're all we're about artists and artists are at the center of our you know of the wheel of awesome and um, and we're going to keep them there Big Brother returned to UK screens last month on ITV2 and streamer ITVX following a five-year hiatus in the territory. Though the big daddy of reality TV has been on air in the US consistently since the year 2000. The show is among the blockbuster evergreen formats within the substantive Banerjee portfolio and Lucas Green, Chief Content Officer for Operations at the company, spoke to Nico Franks at MIPCOM in Cannes about it, the expansion of the Deal or No Deal universe, Survivor and more. So Lucas, we're here at MIPCOM. Banerjee is a big enough company almost to have its own market itself, you know. So many production labels and you do a lot of kind of internal kind of meetings, as I understand it, beforehand. What are some of the kind of trends and issues and challenges that have been coming out of those? Well, I've been at Banerjee for six years and I feel like for me this is the best market that I've been to. There's loads of energy and it really feels like Banerjee, you know, it's three years since Endemol Shine acquisition and it's really hitting its stride now. We've got a great slate of new titles, a great slate of returning titles and super brands and there's just loads of energy around this market. I think people are feeling really upbeat and we know that there's a lot of challenges at home, not only in the production uh, landscape, you know, changing clients, um, but also, you know, the geopolitical world that we live in, you know, we've got two wars on our doorstep in Europe and I think people are um, anxious and it's really nice to, to, to come here and actually meet up with our fellow producers and our other companies and really get behind some of those you know TV challenges that we face and it's been it's been really comforting to see our colleagues again and work together and remind ourselves 
why we want to work in TV and you know touching people's lives and telling great stories. So that's been super exciting. In terms of the trends that we're seeing in the market, uh, for me, working specifically with returning brands, we're seeing a huge appetite for reality, high volume, low cost reality and strategic reality. So uh, relationship shows, things like Love Triangle, um, save the date, but also um, shows that can be scaled and provide many, many hours, which can be a double hit both on linear uh, premiere, but also support um, local uh, VOD uh, platforms. So Big Brother ITVX is a classic example, but also um, uh, The 50, Good Luck Guys, um, Les Cinquante. Um, these are other shows which are actually now in their second or third season and doing like 50 hour orders. And I think that's a really great solution for a lot of the local um, channels, uh, VOD platforms. And is that what you mean by strategic reality? So shows that, that can kind of draw people to platforms or is that an actual kind of part of the show? Uh, I mean actually part of the show. So you know, it's, it, they, reality shows can be a great strategic solution for clients, but I, I'm, uh, I mean there in terms of gameplay. So I'd say Traitors is a strategic reality from you know one of our um, competitors, but Big Brother's a strategic game, Survivor is a strategic game. Really exciting to be launching Survivor on BBC this autumn. And actually I think one of the things that hopefully viewers will recognise is that it's not really just a survival show. You know, It's not about building a bivouac and finding a fish and cooking your own dinner and building a tent. It's not a pure survival show like a Bear Grylls show. It's actually outwit, outlast, outplay. It's about being the last person standing. And it really is a, it's a game, it's a social game. And I think we see lots of those on the market. There's a real appetite for those um, shows where you've, you've got to win and it's a, a people taking different approaches. Do you hold back? Do you go out and in front as a favourite and you know um, wear your heart on your sleeve or do you watch everybody else and you make uh, you make you play at the right time and I think people are fascinated by that and I think we've seen a lot of uh, relationship dating shows on the market for the last three or four years and I think this is another type of reality that a lot of younger viewers haven't seen before and are falling in love uh, with Big Brother in the same way that you know ourselves and our mums and dads fell in love with it 20 years ago. And one of the shows on the slate uh, puts a, a twist on a familiar format with Deal or No Deal Island. So tell me a bit about that show and why uh, the island element was brought in. Well, uh, we love doing spin-offs. We love creating universes around our format. So, you know, like Marvel do with their Marvel Universe. We've done that really successfully with MasterChef. We now have nine different iterations of MasterChef in the, in the MasterChef universe. And Deal or No Deal, actually, we, we did a countdown of our, our top 10 Banerjee traveling formats of all time. And Deal or No Deal is still up there at the top. It's the most traveled format in, the, in Banerjee's catalogue. It's been produced in 84 different countries. Um, but absolutely, it can work as a, as a huge volume scaled daily cost-effective show like it hopefully will be in the UK and it is um, in lots of other territories around the world from Italy to coming soon to Australia but Deal or No Deal Island um, is a completely different take on it where it becomes an arced reality series so rather than close-ended episodes there's about 30% of the game in each show but the the core premise is that the cast are trying to build up the prize pot so they're in the US, they play with suitcases rather than boxes. So they're trying to find the suitcases of cash. Each suitcase has got different amounts in, and the ones that they then secure are the ones that are then played for in the in the in the game show part of the show at the end. It's got a new host. Uh, it's got a new look and feel. It's big. It's brash. It's exotic. It's really exciting, and we see lots of buzz around the market for it because it's got a brilliant mix of a known brand that you don't need to explain. Everyone knows. Uh, every TV fan knows how Deal or No Deal works. It's a super simple premise, but also it's got uh, a real prime time feel to it, and it you know leans into that strategic reality that is doing so well. And how much crossover there is there with adventure reality, which was a trend we were writing about uh, before the market in our MIPCOM issue? Adventure reality is still strong. I think you'd classify Survivor as an adventure reality. Um, I think they tend to be escapist and aspirational, but I think this just adds an extra layer of gameplay. So people have seen a lot of shows set on beaches and tropical islands, and they, they tend to work. People like sunshine and they like escapism. But I think that it's really healthy to have other genres of reality and proving that it's um, it's not a one-trick pony reality it can be relationship it can work for a male skewing audience uh, a family audience a female audience and I think that really helps our clients um, build their platforms and their schedules to find you know really broad audiences 
and what feedback have you been getting about the, the recent relaunch of Big Brother in the UK? And tell me a bit about some of the, the updates that you brought in for that reboot. So we're really proud of the Big Brother return uh, with ITV and Natalka's team uh, Initial have done a brilliant job. It's been a long time in the making. And I think uh, there's a lot of scepticism about you know, reboots and bringing back old shows and is there a place for them. And absolutely, I think the creativity that has gone into that return has really paid dividends. And because you can trust Big Brother as a format that always delivers great drama, it allows your teams to really zone in on the creative aspects of the renewal that make it so special. So we love their new eye, we love the colours, we love the look and feel of the house. I think it's really helped it give it an ITV flavour. Um, it's working brilliant in ITV2, but we know that ITVX is a super important strategy for ITV. It's providing lots of hours for their platform. The catch-up numbers are extraordinary. So we've had the seven-day overnights in, and it's getting well over three and a half million, which is brilliant. Um, and it's just uh, it's great comfort viewing. You know, we can catch it. Works really well on social. So the reaction has been brilliant, and I think goes to show that. Uh, Big Brother's never really gone away and might not have been on screens in the UK for five or so years but absolutely it's we've continued to innovate in other territories so that Australia uh, made a very different version um, we've really developed Big Brother as a character we've uh, improved a lot of the workflows and the technology to streamline it to make it a super cost efficient show for broadcasters so uh, it's never been off air in the US. It's been, you know, the, uh, the staple of the, the schedules in the US for 25 years. And in all of that time, it's continued to evolve. And I think um, we, we at Banerjee try and bring those producers together as much as possible and, and learn from each other's successes and embrace experimentation in other territories. So it enriches the experience. And, you know, bringing it back to MIP, that's what's exciting about being here is you get to see compatriots from other territories and other producers and who are trying other things and that's all expertise that doesn't always cost your broadcaster money because um, we're all constantly talking to each other about how we're making these super brands in other countries. There's been some really you know uh, influential Big Brother contestants in the past you know some for good some for bad you know Andrew Tate one example on the bad side when you were going into this version of Big Brother how conscientious were you of who you were putting in and what impact they could have on the world? I think we uh, have really enjoyed working with ITV. Obviously, they have been uh, working really hard on their participant welfare protocols over the last few years, and I think we've been able to really learn from them as well as ourselves. We often ask, uh, we have protocols in place, and they are much more stringent than they have ever been. But we also make sure that they are um, being executed properly. And so we do spot checks on all of our formats around the world. We make sure that the welfare before, during and after the shows is absolutely paramount. Um, so that's second to none for us. When we look at our production bibles and how we uh, run the, the production of those shows around the world, that's a real primary focus for us these days. Um, like any reality show, it's, it can be a really highly pressurised environment and I think uh, one thing that we're it's really important to stress that it's the welfare of our own teams who can sometimes feel the pressure of delivering those shows that is equally as important as the people taking part too. And how much has generative AI been part of the discussions here on your stand but also in the, in the kind of Banerjee wide meetings beforehand as well? We've had some really good meetings about AI. Uh, a great quote from Dr. Alex Connor last week was that it's not you against AI, it's you against a human who's got AI. So absolutely you have to embrace it and you have to figure out how you can use it to make your shows more creative and, and produced more efficiently. My own view, having seen the fresh, uh, the Wits Fresh formats yesterday, there were a lot of AI related shows where AI was in the content. So is this person for real? Is this avatar for real? Dating avatars? Personally, I think that the real growth in AI will be more in production and in editing and uh, instantaneous um, subtitles and graphics and how you can free up time to uh, do quicker cuts. You'll, still, you'll always need a human editor, you'll always need creative co-pilots to push the AI in the right direction and I feel that the answers that you get out of AI are only as good as the human questions that you put into it. But for me, I, um, 
I'm a bit skeptical about whether AI dating shows is going to revolutionise the industry. I think it's much more of a of a production tool, in the same way that the internet. Uh, is a tool which you know has helped research. I remember the days on the Big Breakfast where we had the data room and you had to go in and use old-fashioned phone books to find people's phone numbers and send faxes with with release forms. You know, and of course, technology has just sped up all of those processes. And I think AI is, is just another form of technology that will streamline our process. Sarah DeWitt is Senior Vice President and General Manager of PBS Kids, the children's arm of US public broadcaster PBS, and was also in Cannes where she spoke with Nico about reaching young audiences via YouTube and gaming and the impact of AI. I'm Sarah DeWitt. I head up the PBS Kids service, so my title is Senior Vice President and General Manager of PBS Kids, and uh, I'm part of the public broadcasting service in the United States. And what were you at MIPCOM 2023 looking to, uh, to achieve? Mainly to connect with partners and potential partners. I mean, we do production with so many different production companies, and we do some co-production with different uh, broadcasters as well. And so this is just a really great opportunity to reconnect with all of those producer partners and then talk to more people who we might be able to do projects with in the future. We're really interested in seeing what's going on, kind of seeing especially what other public broadcasters are doing right now, uh, since we are so like-minded. So just a great opportunity to see what's out there and to tell everyone a little bit about what we're working on too. And how much of a challenge is it uh, financing those shows at the moment given that so many eyeballs and we're talking about children are on YouTube and not necessarily on the linear channels? So it's kind of two different questions. Uh, for us, really, I mean, we still have a huge digital experience for PBS Kids. We have over 15.5 million kids a month accessing us on digital platforms. And so we still have really great reach, which means that a lot of our production partners still know they're going to find a lot of eyeballs with us. That said, uh, YouTube is really the way that kids find content today. I mean, they, they approach that platform differently. It's much more kind of snackable for them, uh, ways that they're just kind of like messing around looking for things. And whenever we can come up in that environment, we know that's a big opportunity for us to gain some new fans, to introduce more kids into our content. So we have our 30-minute shows on Linear. We also have all of our content on our free VOD PBS Kids platforms. Um, but then we also do content on YouTube. We put full-length episodes there, but we also do short-form content, and we do some original content in, for that space um, in, a hope, in hopes of really making sure that kids can find us wherever they're looking for content. And how flexible would you say you are when it comes to rights and putting full episodes? So you mentioned that you do do that. Mm -hmm. um, I do do producers and distributors, do they, uh, would they like to see you do it more, do you think? Of course, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but there are some restrictions, uh, particularly with some of the like the home video partners, uh, because PBS really is supposed to be free and open to the public. So our license for content is exclusive distribution in the United States for free, and so then for our um, our partners who are selling things internationally, then what we do on YouTube is geoblocked. We're just just putting it into the United States, but we're working uh, increasingly with some of those partners to make sure our content can be in other territories as well. And do you think YouTube should be investing in original kids' programs? Oh, that's such a great, great question. Uh, they were for a while. Uh, we, like many others, were you know partnering with YouTube for original content at different points. I don't think they ever invested in anything we did. It'd be great if they would. I mean, I think they have so much attention. But as they know, kids are coming uh, regardless. I think what I'm excited about is how can we continue to help kids find really high quality, interesting, educational things on YouTube. I mean, that's that's really the opportunity for us, is to be able to bring them something that's really educational, that really has backing, uh, to really kind of fight some of the misinformation that's out there. And so I'd love to see more of that happening. And you were on a panel during MIP Junior, and you mentioned that, I think it was, you were mentioning your areas where there's most audience kind of viewing figures rising is on your kind of gaming uh, section. So tell me a bit about that. Yes. 
Okay, so for a long time, we have been focused on when somebody pitches a show to us, that we really want them to be thinking about the opportunity to build out that world in the gaming space, in addition to linear narrative. And I think it's, it's fun for producers too. It's a real creative opportunity for them to think in a different way. Uh, but what we learned too is that when kids are playing with those characters, number one, that fulfills this desire all kids have to play. Um, but when they're playing with the characters around content that's educational, there's more opportunity for kids to practice those educational skills. And so there's really good educational takeaway in the gaming space as well. So we have um, over 350 games. Those are all on pbskids.org. Uh, and over 250 of them are also on our PBS Kids mobile app, and that is the fastest growing audience we have right now. I mean, there's just so much insatiable appetite for gaming among this audience, and I think it's a real opportunity for world building. It's also, honestly, part of our programming strategy. So if you think about the lag that happens between a season of content, so kids you know, have watched their 40 episodes, they've seen every single one, and we know we're gonna have to wait another nine months, 18 months for those next episodes to fall. That's often when we'll launch a game in the middle of that. And so for Wild Kratts, for example, Every time we drop a new Wild Kratts game, we not only see that jump to the top of our gaming charts, we also see that streaming video rise and sometimes see it rise on linear at the same time. So that different way kids can explore and interact with that property ends up like making all boats rise. It's really awesome. And how much does AI come into that kind of strategy of, of gaming or, or kind of um, engaging with kids? So the things we've been doing with AI are kind of on, on two sides. So the one that we've been uh, talking about the most recently has been we're doing an experiment with um, AI and interactive episodes. And so I want to clarify here, this, this is not generative AI. Uh, the AI is being used to really listen to the child's uh, language and be able to parse it. So the AI is interpreting, that's a better word, interpreting what the kids have said and then helping find the right response for the character to say and all those responses are written by the uh, writers for the show. So we feel like that way we really are getting the character right, we're really being true and organic to what that character wants to do and then um, also making sure we get the curriculum right. But what it means is that kids are getting to talk to the characters. So uh, we're doing it with two shows right now, Eleanor Wonders Why and uh, a new show that's coming out in February, Lila in the Loop. And what happens is you're in a normal episode and then suddenly the character breaks the fourth wall and asks the audience a question. And it's usually about something that's just happened. So in the case of Eleanor, they're making race cars and she asks the kid, what would make this car go faster? And so based on what they've seen so far, the kid might say, oh, well, you want to make the front pointy because that'll be more aerodynamic. Um, the kid is likely not to use that language. And so sometimes it's like pointier or it's like, you need the wind to go, you know, or something like that. And that way Eleanor can respond and say, yeah, let's see if that works. Let's try it out. Or if they said something totally different, she can begin to like kind of um, go a little bit deeper on the science concept. Um, it's been so fun to watch. And um, our partners for it, uh, they're at UC, University of California, Irvine, and University of Michigan, are seeing that kids who interact with these episodes come away with a stronger understanding of the science concepts. So really excited about how we might approach this more. Um, and in the gaming front, we're doing a lot of work with UCLA uh, in California also about um, research around machine learning and how we can use our game data to better understand how kids are learning. Everything is anonymized for us. It's all, you know, we, we aren't collecting any child's information, but because we know at what points in the game they might be learning a key concept, we can then look at all of this gaming data and see how many kids reach that point and begin to understand how much kids are learning from our content. It's really, really interesting work to try to understand educational impact. And where would you draw the line when it comes to producers and writers using AI? And would you prefer them to kind of be open with you about when they're using it? Or would you almost kind of rather not know? Oh, we absolutely need to know. I mean, I think it's incredibly important that anyone discloses uh, what they're doing. Right now, what we're trying to work with producers on is what is the, what is the place where this technology can help drive um, more learning or efficiency? Like where can it take care of some technical work that we haven't been able to do before? But that human piece 
is absolutely critical for the writing, for the design, for you know, just really being able to capture those characters. And so I think we are always looking at new technologies to say, okay, what's, what's the opportunity for learning here? What's the opportunity that we as a non-commercial broadcaster uh, could bring to this that isn't being solely driven by revenue? Um, there, must, there are opportunities that we find that often commercial counterparts aren't paying attention to because that's not going to drive their business. But we're, we're looking at things really differently. So that's the kind of thing that we get excited about when our producers come to us to say, okay, we have an idea, we want to try this. And we often engage with uh, a research partner to then do some trials and uh, research around it before we kind of launch something to the public. So that's where we are with this conversational episode piece. We had a grant from the National Science Foundation. We did one whole grant just focused on research, and now we're in a second grant doing a little more research just to smooth things out, but then this will be implementation. We'll get it out to the public. And what's your take on how the kind of European kids industry is doing and in your conversations you've been having with producers and distributors at, at MIPCOM? Well, I think everybody's feeling the same thing, that things are hard right now, but I'm encountering a lot of optimism. Um, and I'm really excited, particularly to be t again, talking to the public broadcasters to see kind of where they're seeing real opportunity. I've been having lots of conversations about preschool content and what we can all be doing right now to combat learning loss. A lot of conversations about misinformation and news and civics and what kinds of things can we be, what kinds of tools can we be creating to help kids kind of manage living in the world today. Uh, also around well-being and mental health. So it feels like there are a lot of things that I'm hearing that are really similar to what we're paying attention to in the United States too. And so I just think there are lots of opportunities for partnership here to do and also to do really good things for kids. Uh, if we can get the partnerships in the right place, that we can move it forward. I think uh, there's real opportunity to like make a real impact for kids. And finally, are there any kind of specifics when you're being pitched that you're looking for at the moment um, in terms of be it the audience you're looking to bring in or kind of the subject? Like you mentioned misinformation a few times. Yeah. Yes, there are. Um, so we're paying a lot of attention to, on the subject side first, we're paying a lot of attention to learning loss in the United States. And what we're hearing is that's really basic literacy and math. And so those are things that we're paying a lot of attention to now. Uh, in just a few days, we're about to launch our Super Y comic book adventures, which is a spin-off of Super Y focused really on literacy for kids and how can we get more kids back to that franchise because it's really going to help with that loss. So that's one thing. Um, another thing that we are really interested in is different formats. Um, so. I've been having a lot of conversations about this idea that kids are looking for different types of content on different platforms. They're looking for different things on YouTube than they're looking for, you know, on a tablet. They're more interested in gaming, perhaps, than watching long-form video or short-form video on a tablet. Um, and so really trying to think about where are properties that could exist in different formats. It doesn't all have to be. 11-minute episodes or half-hour series. Um, we're interested in shorts. We're interested in audio, so we're doing podcasts as well, and um, also certainly in gaming. So having um, ideas, of, talking to folks who are open to, they may think that they're pitching a 30-minute show, and we might say, sounds like it would be really cool shorts. And so that's like some of the great best partnerships we're getting is when people are thinking, okay, let's try that out. And then, you know, maybe eventually it will move into another format. We've had that happen a lot. Uh, with PBS Kids shows, something that started in short form and now has moved into gaming or started in shorts and now is full-length episodes. So really being open to thinking about different ways of approaching the content. Sarah DeWitt speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.